0: This is an unusual psalm because it has a um, a clear context which you can read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, some homework for us this week and um, so read the context of this passage and it's also unusual because it's one of those psalms that just seems to be wrenched out of the heart of the writer. This is not something that he's gone up into his study, taken up his pill or opened his iPad or whatever and... He, this has been wrenched from his heart. Let's read this together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, and according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar.
1: What are we dealing with here? Psalm 51 is one of the most famous parts of the whole Bible. And we're seeking over these summer Sundays to look at modern problems with ancient or, more accurately, biblical answers. And if you haven't picked it up already, this psalm is all about the topic of guilt. It's about guilt. I think it's fair to say for the past 50 years at least, therapists, talk show hosts, chat show hosts, um, makers of chocolate and all things indulgent have been trying to help us forget the issue of guilt. You can eat as much as you want and it's fine. You can do whatever you want. You can sleep with whoever you want. You can go and do and think whatever you want. It has no consequences and uh, guilt is an old, archaic word that is long forgotten and we can wash our hands of it. That's modern thought. But I think that's uh, unhelpful. I think it's not true and I think it hasn't worked. Uh, Guilt is a little bit like an iceberg. You see the tip of it, but the vast body of it is uh, underneath. It has profound power. It's very hard to get rid of. It can have lasting damage on a person's heart. Uh, If you're suffering from depression, um, or you have, if you have suffered from anxiety, or if that's still a current issue, if you struggle with fear, very often, from my experience, that can be anchored uh, in the source of guilt for something that's happened in the past. It can be very extensive in its power. It can uh, be underneath everything. It's amazingly powerful. So what is it? Well, here's a definition I've found uh, short and helpful. Guilt is the awareness of failure against a standard. Guilt is the awareness of a failure. You feel a failure because you've not met a standard. You've not reached a bar. So here are some examples to earth it a little bit. You uh, feel that there is a standard. It's not just the Bible. You feel that there is a standard that if you are a mum or a mom, if you're from American shores, if you are a mum and your are home you struggle to keep it tidy, you have at least one person who sees it as their responsibility to make your life hard. They're short, not your husband. And um, they love drawing and making artistic impressions on the wall. And everything is conspiring against you as you live in your home, to keep your home tidy, to have a meal on the table, because both of you are working hard as well um, It's just Life is just hard, it's chaotic, but the standard in the world, in an ideal home, which you feel your home is far from that is that your home should be perfect, it should always be tidy, that children should be there, but they should always look their best maybe seen and not heard, but you don't meet the standard and that's a source of profound guilt Um, What about personally? You know that uh, people have inherent dignity and so when you speak, you should speak kindly to people, you should deal fairly with people. But when words come out of your mouth, whether it's a source of tiredness or frustration or dislike or anger, you deal with people harshly, you deal with people unkindly, you don't treat people in a way that you know that they deserve, you continually lose your temper. You're irritable and you're kind of harsh with your tongue. You don't meet the standard. You're not the person you should be or the person you want to be. And so it's a source of guilt. (coughs) What about body image? Classic. You can feel guilty because you don't look as fit as you should be. You don't look the certain size that you want to be or you're told that you must be. Guilt. Guilt is absolutely everywhere. I haven't even mentioned the passage significantly yet. Depression, boredom, anxiety, anger, they're all words that I think deep down, they're just the tip of the iceberg, they are rooted very often to the topic of guilt. Now that's why I want to look at Psalm 51, because as Andy said, not only is it kind of wrenched from the uh, experience of David that we're going to look at shortly, but it is, it's the go-to passage, widely recognised, it's the go-to passage in the whole Bible, where we meet someone who is wrestling earnestly struggling to process and seeking a solution to deal with their guilt. I mean, David thinks and realises that permanent change is really possible, it's attainable with with two realisations that we're going to come to in a moment. He uh, recognises that although he's a king, he can't be helped by the king's men. He's not like Humpty Dumpty, his world has fallen apart, he feels crushed, not just the shell. But he realises that with these two realisations, he can be put back together again, but not by the king's men. As Dave pointed out, he's put back together again by God because he discovers repentance. And that's what I want us to explore. But as Andy said, the key part to understanding this psalm accurately, biblically, is you've got to understand the context. And I need to take a few moments to tell you and to remind you of the narrative that we can read in the book of Samuel. <coughs> Let me remind you, a psalm of David, it says, says the prescript above verse one, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. There's the context, it's all in Samuel, you can go and read it later on, but this is what happened. There was once a young man called David and he was junior in the kingdom of King Saul. King Saul was on the throne and Jealousy increasingly filled the heart and the horizon of Saul. It's all there in the narrative, and so David was an outlaw. He was like Robin Hood, but without the tights. And he was forced to live in the wilderness. He was forced to... uh, fend for himself. It's very perilous. It was very dangerous. And in 2 Samuel 22 to 24, you can read that he wasn't by himself, but he gathered to himself 37 mighty men, 37 strong, courageous men who were men of integrity, men who would fight, men who would lay down their lives and do great and courageous acts to serve David. David in time became king. Saul was no longer on the throne but it was a time of warring and fighting against the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel and David in Jerusalem sent out his troops to fight to defend the borders of Israel and to fight against the enemies including uh, his 37 mighty men. He was one day in the uh, throne room. And he said, I think I'll go and stretch my legs. And he went up onto the top of his palace. Of course, it was higher than the other uh, buildings and homes in Jerusalem. And he saw a stunningly beautiful lady. Who is she? I want her. I have to have her. I'll do anything to get her. So the storyline goes. And he made inquiries and found out that her name was Bathsheba. She was an absolutely stunning lady. And his heart went out to her and he would do anything to get her. And indeed he did. He found out that this beautiful woman was the wife of one of his closest friends, Uriah, the Hittite. He was one of his mighty men. He was one of his crack SAS groups, his SEAL team, who would defend and do anything for him. But he had to have her nevertheless. It didn't matter whose wife she was. He wanted her more than anything, and and an affair began. He invited her over to the palace, and they slept together, had sex together. And then the news came. Bathsheba sent word to the king, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. And David suddenly realized he was in deep, deep trouble. He not only found out that she was married, now she's pregnant. What am I going to do? I've got to do something to cover up. And there's no spin doctor invented yet. There's no smokescreen that I can create. What am I going to do? I've committed adultery. I need to cover it up. I know what I'll do. I'll get her husband back. So he picked up his phone, so to speak, and he got Uriah from the front line back home. You're one of my closest friends. How's the fighting going? Was the... uh, reason that he presented for calling him off the front line and this world of fighting's really hard and this is what's happening that's great, that's great, that's enough, that's enough detail, why don't you go home, you've worked so hard, you've fought so many long and bloody battles, go home, have a wash, have a great meal, sleep with your wife, you've deserved it that's the cover-up I've got planned says King David But it wouldn't work because Uriah was a man of standing. How can I do that when my men are out fighting? I'll do no such thing. I'm not gonna sleep under the safety of my room. I'm not gonna enjoy a great meal. I'll sleep on the front step. David's plan was foiled. What should I do? How can I cover my tracks? I know I'll get him back to, uh, to my throne room, to my courtroom and I'll get him drunk. Come back, come back to the palace. We've got great wine, we've got great food. Why don't you go back home and sleep with your wife? You've deserved it. How can I do such a thing, says Uriah? I'm a man who's brave. I'm trusted. I'm a man who will not do something my men who I'm fighting alongside can't. David's plans are fooled yet again. There's kind of a comedic tension to David's plans to cover up what has happened. What's he to do? And so finally... David says, I need to cover up and I do anything. He's one of my right-hand men, one of my mighty men of valour. But I need to cover up what I've done. And so he wrote a letter. He wrote a note to Joab. Joab was in charge of the armies. He was the general, the commander-in-chief. And he said, I want you to put Uriah right, right at the front of battle. And when he's at the The hottest point of the battle, I want you to tell the men around him to pull back and I want him dead. I want him dead. I want to get rid of this man. Put him where the fighting is heaviest. Withdraw from him. Make sure that he dies in the field of battle. Three days later, the letter came. King David, Uriah the Hittite, has died in battle. Now what did David do? because we need to get to our passage. What did David do? Was there suddenly a macbeth like out, damn spot? the guilt, what have I done? There was nothing of the sort. No pang of conscience, he sent a message back to Joab, and he said, don't trouble yourself, Joab. Don't trouble yourself. The sword devours first one and then another. Don't worry about it. After a period of mourning, Bathsheba was invited to live with David and he took her to be his wife. David wasn't uh, troubled at all by the events that happened. I'm sure Joab was more troubled. He's cool, he's happy. And then God in his mercy sends to him a messenger named Nathan. And Nathan holds up a, a word mirror for David to look at the the horrendous actions of his own heart, his motivations are seen clearly through a prophetic tale that Nathan tells so accurately, so precisely, and God puts his finger on the hard-heartedness, the determination, the, uh, the cold-bloodedness, the premeditation of what he's done. One of his trusted friends is just... It's just a commodity to King David because what he wants, he has to get and he'll do anything to anyone to get it. But when Nathan holds up the word mirror, God exposes his motivations and David is cut to the heart. He sees the guilt, the shame. He sees the horror of the things that he's done. And it's at that point he writes this psalm. If you, like I, have struggled with guilt for things you've done in the past, it's a bit like superglue. You think, there's no way I can deal, I can, there's no way I can deal with those decisions that I've made, the beds I've slept in, the people I've let down, the mum and dad that I should have been, the mistakes I've made, the marriages that I've broken down and I've been a part of. There's no way I can deal with that. It's like an hourldite. I just can't separate the two. In this psalm, there is hope for you and there's hope for me. Because David says this, look at the last few sentences, verse 13. Something happens to David that we're going to look at now. He says, I'm going to tell transgressions your ways. I'm going to tell people of your greatness, verse 14. I'm going to sing aloud of your righteousness, verse 15. God, will you open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. How did David do it? Because if David can do it, we can do it too. Here's how he did it, point number one. David discovered the difference between remorse and repentance. The difference between remorse and repentance. The Bible is a very strange book. The Bible tells people who they are, the men and the women of the Bible, just warts and all. I mean, David, along with uh, Moses, along with Saul, they're all murderers. I mean, the women and men of the Bible, all their dirty linen is written on the pages of Scripture so that we see not them as examples to follow. Jesus is not an example to follow. He's a saviour and a rescuer we so desperately need. But when you see the men and women of the Bible with their lives laid bare, we're supposed to think, hang on, not David, how on earth could you do that? We're supposed to think if the king of Israel can do that, who is a poet, who is an athlete, who is a great man of God, if he can do that, then so can I, and so can you. David discovered the difference between remorse and repentance. Look at verse 1. Maybe these words are familiar to you if you've ever had to deal with guilt in your life. Verse 1 Have mercy on me. Verse 1 Blot out my transgressions. Verse 2. Wash away all my iniquity. We recognise those words, don't we, if we've had something to do with guilt and uh, regret in our lives. But then their sentence in verse 4, maybe you've never said this, if you're not a Christian. Against you and you only have I sinned. What? Hang on, I've read the story. It's Uriah that you need to say sorry to. You killed the guy. It's Bathsheba you need to say sorry to. You wrecked her marriage. What are you talking about? I was with you, verses 1, 2, and verse 4, lost you. David is discovering something profound, the difference between remorse and repentance. He uh, is not saying, I don't need to say sorry, I haven't done terrible things in my life. He's not saying that at all. He knows what he's done. But God is showing him through Nathan, by his Holy Spirit, something profound that's happened in his heart. To paraphrase, David realises, before I sinned against those people, before I wrecked their lives, I sinned firstly against God. Before I committed physical adultery, I committed spiritual adultery. That's what he sees. I was willing to murder to get this woman into my bed. I was willing to murder and do anything. I didn't care whose wife she was, just to sleep with her. What I saw, I had to have. Before I sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, I sinned against God. It's repentance. You see, it's God-centeredness. Look about remorse, though. In remorse, you don't think about God. You use these sort of words. Do you recognize these, perhaps from the paper or even from your own lips? You think about yourself. You think, that's another fine mess I've got myself into. The mistakes that I've made. What a fool I am. I'm just a complete idiot. My best friend, my trusted warrior. How could I have done that to myself and to him? I've hurt absolutely everybody. How could I have done this? What a mess I've made. None of those sentences mention God. They centre on yourself. You're mad at yourself at the mistake you've made. How could I let my teammates down? Perhaps someone says that in the paper recently. You're hating yourself, but you're looking in, you're looking in, and you keep looking in. That's remorse. Repentance says, against you and you only have I sinned. You look out. Do you see the difference? Remorse, you look in. Repentance, you look out. And it's God-centred. Verse 4, you do not say, what a fine mess I've got myself into. David said, against you and you only have I sinned. And let me press this, remorse always moves you away from God. Repentance moves you towards God. Repentance is a gift from God. Repentance gets you not just to identify the mistakes you've made, that's remorse. Repentance gets you to name your sin and you move towards God. Saw in the newspaper this week, there's been a three billion pound aircraft carrier built. I think it's called a, the HMS Elizabeth or something like that. It's a huge ship. One of the assets it will have on there is a minesweeping device. Beep, beep, all that sort of stuff. You see danger ahead of you. Sin, sin plants minds in our hearts and in our lives. We do, we've done great damage in the lives of people. Repentance is the minesweeper. Repentance is the gift of God for you to be sensitive to the mistakes you've made, not against other people. It's all God-centred against you and you only have I sinned. It's the mind-sweeping device that God has given for our own heart. That's why God sent Nathan to David. He comes out of the depths, but it begins by recognising there is a difference between remorse, that's inward-looking, and repentance, that's outward-looking and God-centred-looking and that's profound difference that David comes to a realization of. Here's the, the second point to note from this passage, it's two more R's, I tried to get it more simple and I couldn't manage it. Reprieve, regeneration. Reprieve, regeneration. What's interesting to me, and I'm glad the kids have gone now, or most of them, what's interesting is that David does not say, oh Lord forgive me, give me a second chance, just one more time. Just give me a reprieve. If you gave me one more shot at this, I wouldn't make the same mistakes again, I promise. Now I behave like that as an adult, let alone as a child. David does not ask God for a reprieve. I'll never do it again, boss. Because that wouldn't do any good. David begins to realise what his heart is like, verse five, in sin. Did my mother conceive me? He understands his nature. There's a rottenness, not in an apple, but David says, I don't need a second chance. I'm rotten to the core. I don't need a a new start. I need a new heart. I don't need a reprieve. I need a regenerate. I need new life. So what does he ask for? Verse 10, I don't need a reprieve. I want you, Father, to create in me a clean heart. I want a new heart. I want a new nature. He asks for life. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. I want a new heart. You can um, spot a Christian and a religious person by how they understand this. A religious person will always want a second chance. I can wipe my slate clean by seeing... The right holy person, depending on which religion they follow. And they have the power to absolve, to forgive my sin, even if it's on my deathbed. You get down on your knees and you can confess what you've done. I know I did wrong. Please give me a fresh start for the week ahead. But a Christian knows that that will not be enough. A Christian says, I don't need a new start. I need a new heart. It's not just a reset button. I need a whole new inner workings and a whole new power at work in my heart. And that's what God has always done. Think back to the first chapter of the Bible. The Spirit of God is intimately involved in the creation of the world. The Holy Spirit hovering over the abyss, bringing life where there is nothingness. And that's exactly, if you trace that through and through the Bible, what he who gives life, the Holy Spirit always loves to do. He comes upon dead people and gives them new life. That's always what the Holy Spirit does. Now how does that happen? Look at verse 6. This is the definition of what God desires. You desire truth in the inward parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. That's the definition of what God requires. So how does this new spirit-empowered supernatural life, how does it happen? Verses 10 to 13, create in me a pure heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. How? By bringing your Holy Spirit into me, by planting your truth into my inward parts. First one, there's a clue there. David knew God's steadfast love from the past. He knew God's character from his earlier life where he had great victories in the power and name of God, fighting for his honour. He's got that in his heart and so he throws himself on God's mercy. He says, Lord, take that truth that I knew about you that I've forgotten and plant it afresh in my heart. But we know something far greater, says the gospel. We know something even greater than David knew who's looking forward to the Messiah. He trusted God and did great things for God. But friends, we can look back to the cross and we have the full revelation of God. Look at verse 9. David says, hide thy face. Hide your face from my sins. Three verses later, verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence. Literally the word is face. Cast me not from your face. He's saying, verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Please don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your back on me. But isn't that true in every relationship? When your kids let you down, when your work colleague has made an absolute howler that it's going to take you months to repair, you have a choice, don't you? When that confession, when that revelation is shared with you, either you can look at the person or you can look at the consequence of their actions. You cannot look at both at the same time. It's the same in every relationship. And David is saying... Father, hide your face from my sins, but please turn your face towards me. Now, how is that possible? Because of the cross. Because of the cross, we know what David didn't know. We know how this psalm is is answered. He's looking forward with a longing, he's throwing himself on a God who he knows is merciful. Because on the cross, the Father does something he's never done before. On the cross, as Jesus' arms are stretched out, as he's dying for the sins of the world, what is happening in that moment? Isaiah says, God the Father, as Jesus turns to him, turned his back on his son, turned his face away from him. For the first time in all of his life, As Jesus turned to his daddy, turned to his father, he turned to God. His father didn't turn to him. For the first time in all eternity, he looked up to heaven, and it's as if there was no one there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because, friends, God was hiding his face from his Son, so that he could, as it were, hide his face from our sins. He couldn't look at both. He punished Jesus, David says, with a longing and on the cross a reality so that our sins could be blotted out. How is that possible? How can God's justice be satisfied because of the cross? How can our sins be blotted out because they were carried by King Jesus? Fully, perfectly, and finally, and sufficiently, Friends, when you're born again, when the Holy Spirit, who hovered over the abyss in the first chapter of the whole Bible, when he comes and works in your heart, that knowledge, that knowledge becomes truth. It becomes hidden in your inward parts, your heart, your soul. The Holy Spirit gets that truth and it suddenly the lights are turned on. It becomes your truth and true truth supernatural power at work in your life, in your inner parts, your heart. It comes in and then it starts to eat away at worry. Worry starts to be eroded. The the mind sweeper starts to work. If you're born again, that truth becomes real. And you think, hang on, why do I need to worry about the future? I've been rescued at the cross. If Jesus Christ... If he was raised by his father from the grave, I don't need to be fearful of death. I don't need to worry about the future because a father in heaven, my father in heaven, he cares for me. And he does all things well. Lying. I don't need to lie to secure that deal at work. I don't need to lie to make money. If you've been born again, your tr- the truth of the gospel is increasingly in your inward parts. And so you can say, wait a minute, if Jesus did all this for me, Surely his revealed will, what I can see, surely that's enough for me. I don't need to lie. God is good and he loves me. That's what it means to be born again, to have this truth made real. Now, some of you uh, might be thinking, hang on, what about verse 12? Verse 12 kind of uh, perplexes me. What does it mean? Was David actually a Christian? Yes. Verse 12 says, restore to me... The joy of my salvation. And you might be tempted to think, hang on, with all that uh, story that you retold of his adultery with Bathsheba, the fact he was involved in the murder of another man, how could a Christian be involved with anything like that? He lost the joy of his salvation, verse 12, because he sinned. That's how the logic goes. I don't think uh, that's completely true. That's partially true. He lost the joy of his salvation because he sinned. That's true. But it's also true, listen carefully, David sinned because he lost the joy of his salvation. They worked together. It wasn't that David was not a Christian at this point. I think it's fair to say he'd lost the joy of his salvation. He forgot the gospel. He fell into deep and profound sin. But may we never look down upon David. Because the same condition, the same power is at work in our hearts. And so David says, I've forgotten it. I sinned because I lost the joy of my salvation. And I've lost the joy of my salvation because I've sinned. May that never happen again. I forgot your unfailing love. I wasn't ravished with it. It wasn't the joy of my experience. I forgot it. And what I saw I had to have. Father, forgive me. Before I ever sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, it was against you. That's what I forgot, I forgot you. I stopped being excited by the gospel. I stopped being thankful for all that you've done for me. I stopped enjoying you and your promises for the future and I thought I could have my best life now. Father, please forgive me. Restore to me the joy of the gospel. Friends, have you asked God to create in you and new heart? Do you need to? Have you never done it before? This is the antidote to guilt. This is the power that is possible for you to break the ball and chain that guilt can be. Guilt does not need to define us anymore because of the power of the cross and the realness of the gospel. Have you asked God or have you prayed something like this as we close? Create in me a clean heart, O God, because I know my sin is against you and all my flaws, and all my sins throughout all of my life are against you. And because I see that, that I've been stomping on your goodness, that I'll always go trampling on your goodness. Please will you give me a new heart. Not a fresh start, but a new heart. Bring that truth in. Implant it in me. Give me a new nature. supernatural one that longs what you long. And you know what? The Gospel says... That's exactly what God loves to do, and he will. Let's pray. Father, we recognise that uh, guilt is a profound power to shape us and it can define us. Thank you that your blood is greater still. Thank you that the gospel is more powerful. Thank you that the cross has paid for all our guilt and sin everything that we are aware of in our mind's eye right now in this moment, but all those other things that we have lost sensitivity to, that we just think are normal, the cross has paid for those sins as well. Please would this psalm do a deep and a profound work in my heart and in our hearts. Thank you for the cross of Christ. Help us to hold it dear so that we would not lose the joy of our salvation. Please forgive us for when that has happened. Amen.